But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world, that is Satan, as the director of its religions, hath blinded the minds of them that believe not. In chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, he affirmed that while indeed there was a glory connected with the old covenant, yet that of the new excelled it. Amplification of that is made in chapter 4, verse 6. The pillar of cloud and of fire which guided Israel during their journeyings was but external and temporary, but Jehovah has now shined in our hearts unto the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That inward illumination abides in the believer forever. Immeasurably superior are the new things which have displaced the old. In verses 8 through 18, the apostle mentions some of the trials which a faithful discharge of his commission had entailed. After a characteristic digression in which the apostle described the rich compensations God had provided for his servants and his people in general, verses 1 through 10, he returns to the subject of his ministerial labors, making known the springs from which they issued, verses 11 through 14. As in chapter 3, when vindicating his apostleship, he had interwoven important doctrinal instruction, so here. First, it should be carefully noted that Paul was still engaged in closing the mouths of his detractors, yea, furnishing his converts with material to silence them. See verse 12. Speaking of his adversaries as those who glory in appearance and not in heart. In what follows he adduces that which could not be gainsaid, because we thus judge, or reason, that if one died for all, then we're all dead. Verse 14. A most misleading translation which is corrected in the revised version. One died for all, therefore all died. It is quite true that those for whom Christ died were spiritually dead, but that is not what is here referred to. Their being unregenerate was a fact without Christ dying for them. Rather was Paul showing the legal effect or what follows as the consequence of Christ having died for them. Having judged this, that if one died for all, then they all died. The apostle there enunciates a theological axiom. It expresses the principle of federal representation. The act of one is, in the sight of the law, the act of all those on whose behalf he transacts. The whole election of grace died judicially in the death of their surety. Christ's death so far as the claim of the divine law or the end of the divine government were concerned is the same as though they had all personally died. Died unto what? The consequences of their sins, the curse of the law. Yes, though that is not the main thing which is here in view, what then? This rather, that they had died to their old standing in the flesh. They no longer had any status in that realm where such distinctions as Jews and Gentile obtained. They had not only died unto sin, but unto all natural relations. Death levels all distinctions. 
but that is only negative. The apostle goes further and brings in the positive side in that he died for all, that they that live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him who has fulfilled all its requirements. It is the legal oneness of Christ in his church on the resurrection ground. Having borne the curse, they are dead in the law. Living now through Christ's resurrection, they cannot but live unto him, because judicially one with him. His resurrection was as vicarious as his death, and the same individuals were the objects of both. The pertinency of this reasoning, this blessed truth, in fact, to the Apostle's case, should at once be apparent. Christ's own relation to Judaism terminated at his death, and when he came forth from the grave, it was unto resurrection, entirely new ground. And thus it is, with all those he legally represented. What has just been pointed out above is made yet clearer in verse 16, where the apostle shows the conclusion which must be drawn from what he had just proved. Wherefore, henceforth know we no man after the flesh. Yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth know we him so, no more. To know a man after the flesh is to own him according to his natural state, his racial distinction. To know Christ after the flesh was to approve him as the seed of David, the Jewish Messiah. But the death of Christ annulled such relations. His resurrection brought him a new and higher relationship. Therefore, in the exercise of his ministry, Paul showed no respect to a man merely because he was a Jew. Nor did he esteem Christ on the account of his being the son of David. Rather, did he adore him as being the Savior of Jew and Gentile alike. Thus the sinful partiality of those who were seeking to Judaize the Corinthian saints was conclusively exposed. Verse 17 states the grand conclusion to be drawn from what has been established in the context the great change. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Second Corinthians 5.17 Familiar as those words, simple and plain as their meaning appears to be, yet like almost every verse in the epistles, this one can only be rightly understood by ascertaining its connection with the context. Nay, we go further. Unless this verse be interpreted in strict accord with its setting, we are certain to err in our apprehension of it. The very fact that it is introduced with therefore shows it is inseparably connected with what goes before, that it introduces an inference or draws a conclusion therefrom. And if we ignore it, we reject the key which alone will open its contents. We have already taken up the preceding verses, though we have by no means attempted to give a full exposition of the same. Our design has been simply to supply a sufficient explanation of their terms as would enable the reader to perceive the Apostle's drift. That required us to point out the general conditions prevailing in the Corinthian assembly, so that it might appear why 
Paul wrote to them as he did, and then to indicate the trend of what he said in chapters 3 and 4. In chapter 5, verse 12, the apostle tells them, For we commend not ourselves again unto you, see chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, but give you occasion to glory on our behalf, that ye may have somewhat to answer them which glory in appearance and not in heart. Those who gloried in appearance were the Judaizers, who boasted of their lineage from Abraham and of the belonging to the circumcision. In what follows, Paul furnishes his converts with arguments which the false teachers could not answer, employing language which set aside the exclusivism of Judaism. First he pointed out that if one died for all, then the all died, and he died for all. Verses 14 and 15. That thrice repeated all emphasized the international scope of Christ's federal work. He died as truly on the behalf and in the stead of God's elect among the Gentiles as for the elect Jews. And as verse 15 goes on to show, the one benefits therefrom as much as does the other. The cross of Christ affected and introduced a great change in the kingdom of God. Whatever peculiar position of honor the Jews had previously occupied, whatever special privileges had been theirs under the Mosaic economy, they obtained no longer. The glorious inheritance which Christ purchased was to be the portion of all for whom he endured the curse and of all for whom he earned the reward of the law. Next the apostle showed the logical inferences which must be drawn forth from what he had established in verses 14 and 15. First, therefore, henceforth know we no man after the flesh. Yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet not henceforth know we him so no more. Verse 16. Notice first the words which we have placed in italics. They are time marks defining the revolutionary transition, calling attention to the great dispensational change which the redemptive work of Christ had, had produced. That change consisted in the complete setting aside of the old order of things which had held sway during the fifteen centuries preceding, under which a fleshly relations had predominated. Christ had ushered in an order of things wherein such distinctions as Jew and Gentile, bond and free, male and female, had no virtue and conferred no special privilege. For one who had been redeemed, it mattered nothing whether his brethren and sisters in Christ were formerly members of the Jewish nation or aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. He knew or esteemed no man according to his natural descent. The true circumcision are they which worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Jesus Christ and have no confidence in the flesh or their genealogy. Philippians 3.3 3. Not only had the death and resurrection of Christ resulted in the setting aside of Judaism which was based upon a fleshly descent from Abraham and whose privileges could only be enjoyed by those bearing in their bodies the covenant sign of circumcision, Judaism being displaced by Christianity, 
which is based upon a spiritual relationship to Christ, the privileges of which are enjoyed by those who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, the sign and seal of the new covenant. But Christ himself is now known or esteemed after a different and higher manner. It was as their promised Messiah he had appeared unto the Jews, and it was as such his disciples had believed on him. Luke 24:21, John 1:45 and 41. Accordingly he had bidden his apostles, Go not into the way of the Gentiles, and into any city of the Samaritans. Enter ye not, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Matthew 10, 5 and 6. Contrast 28:19. After his resurrection. So far from knowing Christ as the Jewish Messiah, they worshipped him as exalted above all principality and power. Jesus Christ was a mediator of the circumcision, Romans 15.8, but he is now as seated on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the heavenly sanctuary, Hebrews 8.1 and 2. In verse 17, the apostle draws a further conclusion from what he had stated in verse 15. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Yes, any man, be he a Jew or Gentile. Before we can ascertain the force of a new creature, we have to carefully weigh the opening word, for its absence or presence entirely changes the character of the sentence. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Is is a simple statement of fact, but therefore if is a conclusion drawn from something preceding. That one consideration should be sufficient to show our verse is not treating of regeneration. For if the signified any person who is vitally united to Christ has been born again, the therefore would be entirely superfluous. He either is or he is not a spiritually quickened soul, and no reasoning, no inference can alter the fact. Nor is there anything in the context from which regeneration can be deduced, for the apostle is not treating of the gift and operations of the Spirit, but of the judicial consequences of Christ's federal work. Instead of describing Christian experience in the 17th verse, Paul is stating one of the legal effects which necessarily results from what Christ did for his people. In verses 13 and 14, Christ is set forth as the federal head of his church, first in death and then in resurrection. From that doctrinal statement of fact, a twofold inference is pointed. First, in negatively, verse 16, those whom Christ represented died in him to their old status or natural standing so that henceforth they are no longer influenced by fleshly relationships second and positively verse 17 those whom Christ represented rose in him and were inducted into a new status or spiritual standing Christ was transacting as the covenant head of his people and he rose as the head of the new creation as Adam was the head of the old. And therefore, if I be federally in a risen Christ, 
I must legally be a new creature, having judicially passed from death unto life. As Romans 8.1 declares, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. And why? Because being legally one with him, they died in him. In like manner, they are therefore new creatures in Christ. And why? Because being legally one with him, they rose in him, who is the beginning, that is, of the new creation. See further Revelation 3.14 The firstborn from the dead. Colossians 1.18 Judicially, they are risen with Christ. Colossians 3.1 Not only does the context in its opening, therefore, preclude us from regarding 2 Corinthians 5.17 as describing what takes place in a soul at regeneration, but the context of the verse itself forbids such an interpretation. It is indeed true that such a miracle of grace effects a most blessed transformation in the one who is the subject of it, yet not such as comes up in the terms here used. What is the principal thing which affects the character and conduct of a person before he is born again? Is it not the flesh? Beyond dispute it is. Equally evident is it that the old nature does not pass away when God quickens a spiritually dead soul. It is also true that regeneration is an entrance upon a new life, yet it certainly is not the case that all things become new, for he receives neither a new memory nor a new body. If verse 17 be describing some aspect of Christian experience, then it is glorification, for most assuredly its language does not suit regeneration. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Christ Jesus, and hath given to us the ministers of the new covenant, chapter 3, verse 6, the ministry of reconciliation, verse 18. This also is quite against the popular interpretation of the foregoing. Let it be duly noted that verse 18 opens with and, which indicates it continues the same line of thought. All, the Greeks, things which are of God refer not to the universe as proceeding from him nor to his providential agency by which all events are controlled but rather to those particular things spoken of from verse 13 onwards all that Christ accomplished the great dispensational change which has resulted from his death and resurrection the preaching of the ministers of the new covenant have God for their author the outcome of what Christ did is that those for whom he transacted are reconciled to God. In reconciliation, be it particularly noted, is, like justification, entirely objective and not subjective, as is regeneration. Reconciliation is, as we have fully demonstrated in our articles on that doctrine, wholly a matter of relationship. God laying aside his wrath and being at peace with us, and hath given to us, his ambassadors, the ministry of reconciliation, to wit, that God was in Christ reconciling a Greek world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, verses 18 and 19. From there to the end of chapter 6, verse 10, 
the apostle informs us what this ministry consisted of. First, it was that God was in Christ, reconciling, not merely in apostate Judaism, but an alienated world, that is, the whole election of grace, the all, in verses 14 and 15. Then he states the negative side of reconciliation, namely, not imputing their trespasses unto them, which again belongs to the legal side of things. The positive side of reconciliation is given in verse 21, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him, which is entirely objective and judicial, and in no sense subjective and experimental. How vastly different is that than if he had said, reconciling a world unto himself, imparting unto them a new nature, or subduing their iniquities. It is not what God works in his people, but what by Christ he has done for them that the whole passage treats of. Turning back again to verse 17, Therefore, in view of what has been established in the preceding verses, it necessarily follows that if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature, he has a new standing before God, being representatively one with Christ. He has been brought onto resurrection ground. He is a member of that new creation of which Christ is the federal head, and consequently he is under an entirely new covenant. This is the grand and indisputable conclusion which must be drawn. The old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. The natural and national distinctions which obtained under the old covenant find no place on resurrection ground. They were connected with the flesh, whereas the relationship which obtains and the privileges which are enjoyed under the new covenant are entirely spiritual. Once this was clearly apprehended and laid hold of by faith, it rendered useless the contentions of the Judaizers. It is by no means easy for us at this late date to conceive of what that revolutionary transaction from Judaism to Christianity involved, to Jew and Gentile alike. It was the greatest change this world has ever witnessed. For fifteen centuries, God's kingdom on earth had been confined unto one favored nation, during which time all others had been left to walk in their own ways. The gulf which divided Judaism from paganism was far more real and very much wider than that which exists between Romanism and Orthodox Christianity. The divisive spirit between Jew and Gentile was more intense than that which obtains between the several castes in India. But at the cross the mosaic economy passed away. The middle wall of partition was broken down, and upon Christ's resurrection the go not into the way of the Gentiles gave place to go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Fleshly relationships, which had so markedly characterized Judaism, now gave place to spiritual ones. Yet it was only with the greatest difficulty that converted Jews could be brought to realize that fact, and much in the New Testament is devoted unto approving of the same. The principal design of the entire epistle to the Hebrews was to demonstrate that old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. In it, 
the apostle makes it manifest that the old covenant which Jehovah had entered into with Israel at Sinai with all its ordinances of worship and the peculiar privileges connected therewith was disannulled that it was superseded by a new and better economy therein it is declared that Christ hath obtained a more excellent ministry in proportion to his being the mediator of a better covenant which was established upon better promises and after quoting from Jeremiah 31 where the new covenant was announced pointed out that the former one was waxed old are ready to vanish away chapter 8 verses 6 through 13 the transcendent superiority of the new above the old is brought out in many details the former was but temporary the latter is eternal the one contained only the shadow of good things to come the latter the substance the ironic priesthood has been displaced by Christ's and earthly inheritance by an heavenly the blessed contrast between them is set forth most fully in Hebrews 12 verses 18 to 24 not only did the converted Jews find it difficult to adjust themselves to the great change produced by the covenant displacing the old but unconverted Jews caused much trouble in the Christians assemblies insisting that their descent from Abraham conferred special privileges upon them and that Gentiles could only participate in them by being circumcised and being subject to the ceremonial law not a little in Paul's epistles is devoted to a refutation of such errors that the Corinthians were being harassed by such Judaizers we have already shown further evidences is supplied by 2 Corinthians 11.18 where the apostle refers to many glory after the flesh that is their natural lineage but all ground has been cut from under their feet by what he had declared in 2 Corinthians 3 in his unanswerable argument in chapter 5 verses 13 through 18 Christ's death and resurrection had caused old things to pass away the old covenant the mosaic economy Judaism was no more all things had become new a new covenant Christianity with better relationships and privileges a superior standing before God different ordinances of worship had been introduced the same is true of the epistle to the Galatians wherein there are many parallels to what has been before us in Corinthians the churches of Galatia were also troubled by teachers of error who, who were seeking to Judaize them and Paul uses much the same method in exposing their sophistries there is neither Jew nor Greek bond or free for ye are all one in Christ Galatians 3:28 is an echo of henceforth know we no man after the flesh in several respects the contents of chapter 4 verse 21 to 31 are similar to what is found in 2 Corinthians 3 for in both the two covenants are contrasted in Galatians 4 under the allegory of Hagar and Sarah and their sons the superiority of the latter is shown ye that desire to be under the law chapter 4 verse 21 means under the old covenant born after the flesh in verse 23 signifies according to nature by promise equals supernaturally these are means 
represents the two covenants. Verse 24. Cast out the bondwoman and her son of, chapter 4, verse 30, has the force of act in accordance with the fact that the old things are passed away. While the for in Christ Jesus neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creature, the only other place in the New Testament that expression occurs, of chapter 6 verse 15 is enforcing the same truths as 2 Corinthians 5.17. Once the meaning of 2 Corinthians 5.16 be perceived, there is no place for any dispute as to the signification of what immediately follows. In the light of chapter 5 verse 12, in chapter 10 verse 7, in chapter 11 verse 18, it is unmistakably clear that the apostle was dissuading the Corinthian saints from a carnal and sinful partiality, namely of regarding men according to outward appearance or fleshly descent, bidding them to esteem their brethren by their relation to Christ and not to Abraham, and to view Christ himself not as a minister of the circumcision, but as a mediator of a better covenant, who has made all things new. The old covenant was made with one nation only, the new with believers of all nations. Its sacrifices made nothing perfect. Our sacrifice has perfected us forever. Hebrews 10, 1 and 14. Circumcision was for the natural seed of Jacob. Baptism is for the spiritual children of Christ. Only the Levites were permitted to enter the holy place. All the children of God have the right of immediate access to him. The seventh day was the Sabbath under the Sinaitic constitution. The first day celebrates the order of things introduced by a risen Christ. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Having endeavored to remove a stumbling stone from the path of conscious souls by showing that 2 Corinthians 5, 13-21 does not describe the work of the Holy Spirit within God's people, but rather that which results legally from what Christ did for them. It seems needful that we should now seek to probe and search out a different class by considering what does take place in one who is supernaturally quickened. In other words, having dealt with that great dispensational change which the death and resurrection of Christ effected, we turn now to contemplate the great experimental change which in due time is wrought in each one of those for whom the Redeemer shed his precious blood. There are many in Christendom today who give no evidence that they have been made the subjects of such a change, who, ne who nevertheless are fully persuaded that they are journeying heavenwards, while there are not a few souls perplexed because uncertain of what this great change consists of. That which we now propose to treat of may perhaps be the best designated the miracle of grace. First, because it is produced by the supernatural operation of God. Second, because those operations are wholly of his sovereign mercy and not because of any worthiness in those who are the favored subjects of it. Third, because those operations are profoundly mysterious to human kin. Furthermore, that expression, a miracle of grace, is sufficiently abstract 
in general as to include all such terms as being born again, converted, etc., which really refer to only one phase or aspect of it. Moreover, it possesses the advantage of placing the emphasis where it properly belongs and ascribes the glory unto him to whom alone it is due. For God is the sole and unassisted author. Whatever instruments or means he may or may not be pleased to use in the effectuation of the same in a sinner's salvation. It is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but God that showeth mercy. Romans 9.16 By a miracle of grace we include the whole of God's work in his people and not simply his initial act of quickening them. Nothing short of a miracle of grace can change a natural man. 1 Corinthians 2.14 into a spiritual one, 1 Corinthians 2.15. Only the might of omnipotence is able to emancipate a serf of Satan's and translate him into the kingdom of Christ. Anything less than the operations of the Holy Spirit is incapable of transforming a child of disobedience, Ephesians 2.2, into a child of obedience, 1 Peter 1.14. To bring one whose carnal mind is enmity against God into loving and loyal subjection to him is beyond all the powers of human persuasion. Yet being supernatural, it necessarily transcends our power to fully understand. Even those who have actually experienced it can only obtain a right conception thereof by viewing it in the light of those hints upon it which God has scattered throughout his word and even then but a partial and incomplete concept. As our eyes are too weak for a prolonged gazing upon the sun, so our minds are too gross to take in more than a few scattered rays of the truth. We see through a glass darkly, and know but in part. Well for us when we are made conscious of our ignorance. The very fact that the great change of which we are here treating is produced by a miracle-working power of God implies that it is one which is more or less inscrutable. All God's works are shrouded in impenetrable mystery, even when cognizable by our senses. Life, natural life, in its origin, its nature, its processes, baffle the most able and careful investigator. Much more is this the case with spiritual life. The existence and being of God immeasurably transcend the grasp of the finite mind. How then can we expect to fully comprehend the process by which we become his children? Our Lord himself declared that the new birth was a thing of mystery. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh, nor whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. John 3.8 The wind is something about which the most learned scientists know next to nothing. Its nature, the laws which govern it, its causation, all lie beyond the purview of human inquiry. Thus it is with the new birth. It is profoundly mysterious, defying proud reason's diagnosis, insusceptible of theological analysis. The one who supposes he has a clear and adequate comprehension of what takes place in a soul when God plucks him 
as a brand from the burning is greatly mistaken. If any man think that he knoweth anything, he knoweth nothing, yet as he ought to know. 1 Corinthians 8.2 To the very end of his earthly pilgrimage, the best instructed Christian has reason to pray, That which I see not, teach thou me. Job 34.32 Even the theologian and the Bible teacher is but a learner and like all his companions in the school of Christ acquires his knowledge of the truth gradually here a little there a little Isaiah 28:10 he too advances slowly as one great theme after another is studied by him and opened up to him requiring him to revise or correct his earlier apprehensions and adjust his views on other portions of the truth as full a light is granted to him on any one branch thereof. Necessarily so, for truth is a unit, and if we err in our understanding of one part of it, that affects our perception of the other parts of it. None should take exception to, nor be surprised at our saying that even the theologian or Bible teacher is but a learner and acquires his knowledge of the truth gradually. The path of the just is as the shining light which shineth more and more unto the perfect day. Proverbs 4.18 Like the rising of the sun, spiritual light breaks forth upon both preacher and hearer by degrees. The men who have been the most used of God in the feeding and building up of his people were not thoroughly furnished for their works at the outset of their careers, but only by dint of prolonged study did they make progress in their own apprehension of the truth. Each preacher who experiences any real spiritual growth views most of his first sermons as those of a novice, and he will have cause for shame as he perceives their crudity and the relative ignorance which marked the production of them. For even if he was mercifully preserved from serious error, yet he will probably find many mistakes in his expositions of scripture, various inconsistencies and contradictions in the views he then held, in which a fuller knowledge and mature experience now enables him to rectify. What has just been pointed out explains why the latter writings of a servant of God are preferable to his earlier ones, and why a second or third edition of his works he finds it necessary to correct or at least modify some of his original statements. Certainly this writer is no exception. Were he to rewrite today some of his earlier articles and pieces, he would make a number of changes in them, though it may be humiliating unto pride to have to make corrections, yet it is also ground for thanksgiving unto God for the fuller light vouchsafed which enables him to do so. During our first pastorate, we were much engaged in combating the error of salvation by personal culture and reformation. And therefore, we threw our main emphasis on the truth contained in our Lord's words, He must be born again. John, John 3, 3, 5, and 7. Showing that something far more potent and radical than any efforts of our own were required in order to give admission into the kingdom of God that no education, mortification, or religious adorning of the natural man 
could possibly fit him to dwell forever in a holy heaven. But in seeking to refute one error, great care needs to be taken lest we land ourselves into another at the opposite extreme. For most instances, error is truth perverted rather than repudiated. Truth distorts by failure to perceive the balance. Being born again is not the only way in which scripture describes the great change effected by the miracle of grace. Other expressions are used, and unless they be taken into due consideration in an adequate and faulty conception of what that miracle consists of, and effects will be formed. Our second pastorate was located in a community where the teaching of entire sanctification or sinless perfection was rife, and in combating it we stressed the fact that sin is not eradicated from any man's being in this life, that even after he is born again the old nature still remains within him. We were fully warranted by God's word in so doing, though if we were engaged in the same task today we should be more careful in defining what we meant by the old nature, and more insistent that the regenerate person has a radically different disposition sinwards from what he had formerly, that a great change is wrought upon and within a person when God regenerates him is acknowledged by all his people, a change very different from that which is conceived of by many who have never personally experienced it. For example, it goes much deeper than a mere change of creed. One may have been brought up an Arminian and later be intellectually converted that such tenets are untenable and his subsequent conversion to the Calvinistic system is more proof, whatever, that he is no longer dead in trespasses and sins. Again, it is something more radical than a change of inclination or taste. Many a giddy worldling has become so saturated with its pleasure as to lose all relish for the same, voluntarily abandoning them and welcoming the peace which he or she supposes is to be found in a covenant or monastery. So too, it is something more vital than a change of conduct. So notorious drunkards have signed the pledge and remained tonal abstainers the rest of their days and yet never ever made a profession of being Christians. One may completely alter his mode of living and yet be thoroughly carnal, forsake a life of vice and crime for one of moral respectability and be no more spiritual than he was previously. Many are deceived at this point. Let not the reader infer from what has just been said that one may be the subject of a miracle of grace and yet it be unaccompanied by an enlightening of his understanding, a refining of his affections, or a reforming of his conduct. That is not at all our meaning. What we desire to make clear is that the miracle of grace consists of something far superior to those superficial and merely natural changes which many undergo. Nor does that something far superior consist in the communication of a new nature which leaves everything else in its recipient just as it was before. It is the person, not simply a nature, who is regenerated or born again.
Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. John 3.3 3. is an altogether different thing from saying, Except a new nature be born in a man, he cannot see the kingdom of God. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.